an epic matchup between your two favorite teams, and you're at the game getting the most from what it means to be here with American Express. You breeze through the card member entrance, stop by the lounge. Now it's almost tip-off, and everyone's already on their feet. This is going to be good. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your live sports experience at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Eligible American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply. If you travel, you know when it comes to love. See you soon. Can't wait. The sky is no limit. You know with your Delta Amex card, being oceans apart means meeting in Aruba. And booking a war travel with your card means saving 15% on Delta flights. You know kissing under the bridge of size guarantees eternal love. Because you're the long-distance lovebirds. It's why you're a Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card member. If you travel, you know. Takeoff 15 discount not applicable to partner-operated flights or taxes and fees. Terms apply. Visit go.amex slash you know. Bet the board. What do you mean you don't bet? I mean, I don't bet. You know, I don't care. I don't care. I never have. Never will. Yeah, right. I bet you 20 bucks I can get you gambling before the end of the day. You owe me 15 grand, pal. Pay him. Pay that man his money. It's the Bet the Board podcast. God likes me. He really, really likes me. In the end, I wound up right back where I started. I could still pick winners, and I could still make money for all kinds of people back home. And why mess up a good thing? Here's Payne Insider and Todd Furman. Welcome into the Bet the Board podcast, week four, Monday night football edition. I am your host, Todd Furman, joined as always by my esteemed colleague and co-host, the one, the only pain insider. And as always, the Bet the Board podcast is powered by FanDuel Sportsbook and encourage you to go to fanduelsportsbook.com backslash bet the board. Make sure you take advantage of all the generous sign-up bonuses for new users available at FanDuel. FanDuel, $1,000 free bets, enhanced odds, so many different ways for you to get into the game. You'd be foolish not to add FanDuel to your stable of sports books. Payne, for right off the top, I have to ask, Sunday Night Football live up to your expectations or were you a little bit disappointed in the way things played out in the Tom Brady homecoming? I was disappointed because I wanted a clean game. We said it in our Sunday Night Football preview when we discussed the possibility of rain coming in and unfortunately that, that possibility became reality. So, you know, you have two teams that aren't just playing each other, they're kind of playing the elements and jostling that situation around. But everything we said pretty much came to fruition, right? This this game was going to be on Mac Jones, and it was. If you look at all the handoffs New England have, they registered a 15, per, uh, 15 expected yards on those runs. It was the second lowest by any team since 2018. So the ground game was non-existent. I thought Mac Jones played really well. We talked about that short pass game coming into effect against a, a cover three and having some success with that. And what more could Mac Jones do? 31 for 40, 53% passing success rate, finished with the completion percentage, nearly 5% better than expectation despite a shoddy receiver group in the rain. Now, most of that damage was late. And you saw the Bucks lose another cornerback. Carlton Davis went down, looked like he pulled his quad. So you were already down bunting and Dean. Richard Sherman looked like he was old and it looked like it was his first game. He was targeted nine times, gave up nine receptions for, for 102 yards. But I thought New England was lucky to be in that game early. Because if you look at the drive patterns, only one of their first seven drives went more than 19 yards. And over that same span, Tampa had four drives into the green zone. Three of the four entered the red zone. You heard Tom talk after in the end-of-game interview with Michelle Tafoya. We didn't do well in the red area tonight. And that's ultimately what kept the Patriots in that game along with some of the weather elements. You know, you mentioned the weather elements playing a role, and I thought what was fascinating because all of those years in New England, we knew that Bill Belichick and Tom Brady would typically play their best and most focused football when there were other ancillary factors they had to concern themselves with. And in that interview with Michelle Tafoya, Tom mentioned, we're not used to playing in the rain, which I found pretty fascinating that they were kind of out of their element. And just obviously the way you have to construct a team that's going to win games and try and have the playoff road go through New England versus playing down there in Tampa where you don't worry about the elements typically playing a role, especially in your home games. 
what is interesting though is it rains a shit ton in Florida. It rains. Uh, it, it felt like he just kind of was a. I mean, it was it was a weird moment for him, right? You could tell he was starting to get a little bit emotional, and he was giving the PC answers. And I think if this was a game that was played in, you know. 28 degrees and and cold rain it might be a different element but those guys playing rain obviously they do practice indoors you have an indoor practice facility there because of the rain so maybe that's what he was referencing there I obviously believe that we can't discuss this game without talking about the end game situation oh I want I want to get your take on that because I have strong opinions but no 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 I always defer to you as the guy who knows the charts knows the probabilities and the outcomes so I'm curious to get you to walk not only me through this but all of our listeners as well well it's really interesting because you know math is supposed to deliver more facts and kind of remove the feelings and so you know, wherever you go on the internet, you'll see some of the sharpest guys even disagreeing with this. Like Seth Walder came out and was like, I had it 5% in favor of kicking the field goal. Then you had Ben Baldwin saying like, the win probability would have increased by like 2.6 points had they gone for it. And so that discrepancy gives the non-analytics community like, see, if we can't, if all the smart guys can't even agree, how are they going to how are the coaches going to implement this stuff? And so I hate when I see that, but next gen, which I, you know, kind of believe them a little bit more. They came out and basically said that the expected win probability for new England, when they decided to kick the field goal dropped to 24%, had they gone for it, they would have been at a 35% win probability. So that decision from Bill Belichick, was a downgrade in win probability by about 11%. But what's interesting is even when you factor in some of the other elements, right? Like strip some of the math from it and just think about the actual game itself. Fourth and three, you're going to execute a short pass, something you had been dominant with on the last three drives against Tampa. They were down (laughs) three corners at that point. Their top corner is Richard Sherman, who was just signed earlier that week. And even if you're able to snap, hold, and kick a ball in torrential downpour, you still would have given the ball back to Tom Brady down one point with 56 seconds and two timeouts in his back pocket. So I prefer leaning on the aggressive side there. I would have went for it, especially when you factor in how successful you'd been moving it through the air in the short pass game and the Bucks being down three guys in the secondary. Yeah, I think that was my biggest takeaway. I mean, if that's a field goal they're attempting, you know, 15, 20 seconds to go, okay, the dynamics change quite a bit. You're putting the outcome entirely on the leg of your kicker, whereas in that spot, um, Tom, knowing Tom Brady was going to have a chance with the ball back, even if you make the kick, albeit into the weather and all that, but a timeout at his disposal, it would have made for a true Hollywood-type finish uh, for the outcome if Tom marches him down for the game-winning field goal. So I'm kind of with you there in terms of the decision-making and thinking that he should have had um, a little bit more confidence in Mac Jones, who had performed above expectations throughout the course of the game. But I can tell you there were bookmake... Oh, God. That would have been all the drama, too, right? That would have been the official, this isn't Tampa versus New England. This is Brady versus Belichick. This is Tom Brady, final drive, going up against Bill Belichick's defense... And that would have provided the drama that I think everyone was hoping for. Yeah, and I think Bill came up with a good game plan. I mean, uh, he tried to do everything he could in his arsenal to confuse Tom Brady. There were plenty of near misses. Uh, How rarely you see Antonio Brown drop not one, but two balls uh, with a chance to take the lead in crunch time there. I mean, I'm not sure if he lost that first ball in the light that was perfectly thrown, and you could see the confusion on Tom Brady's face, and then Brown diving for a ball that he had in his possession. Just a very surprising way it played out, not necessarily the final score, knowing that every book from here to Timbuktu found themselves rooting uh, for the New England Patriots to get home as a six and a half point dog. I imagine outright would have been a better outcome in the wake of Green Bay and Kansas City, the other two biggest public sides of the day, barreling through their numbers to try and take care of the betting public. But other than Sunday Night Football, clearly plenty of takeaways that we saw throughout the course of the day, Payne. What were some of the good things that you saw unfold so far in week four? I would have been hesitant talking about this had we not won the game because it then comes off like sour milk. And so let's start with Washington. 
Let's start with Taylor Henneke. I thought he looked pretty good in that game. Certainly the first few drives, you're getting used to Dean Pease's defense. You have Logan Thomas go down on the first possession of the game, which I didn't love seeing. But after that, Taylor Heineke looked pretty good. Pushed the ball downfield. Average intended air yards, 9.3, but he was also accurate. Completion percentage, 5% better than expectation. Washington was nearly a full yard better per play than Atlanta in that game. Washington's success rate on first and second down was 10% better than Atlanta's. And I think that was the annoying part when you watch this game. It's like, Jack Del Rio, what are you doing? Get off the field on third and a mile. Third down's what kept Atlanta in the game. Third and eight, third and 15, third and 13, third and seven. Didn't it matter. May, it and, may as well have been you, third and a half a yard every damn time. Yes, and and the refs did some things, right, where we're like, geez, come on. But Atlanta dominated third down, 69% success rate. You saw Jack Del Rio keep singling Calvin Ridley. The third and 13 from the 14, it's like, play a shell defense, Jack. Instead, it's a one-on-one jump ball where Cordero Patterson's got this massive height and physicality advantage over your corner. On third and 13, that's to your advantage. Make Atlanta earn it. They want to throw a 50-50 jump ball on third and 13. You give someone a 50-50 chance on third and 13, all of a sudden things swing in their favor. But it's a huge win for Washington on a week where the players dedicated the game to Ron Rivera being, you know, one year cancer free. Washington overcame some huge swing calls, both in the second half. You had the strip fumble in the green zone where the refs took away um, basically what they said was the runner's progress had stopped, but clear recovery from Washington and they returned the ball quite far. So that came back and Atlanta goes on, scores a touchdown on that drive. And then the massive swing play where Chase Young sacks Matt Ryan on fourth and two. So instead of it being Washington's ball first and 10 from the Atlanta 46, it's Atlanta's ball first and 10 on the Washington 27. That call was one of the largest of the weekend in terms of swing win probability. And it's one thing if you're a great team at home as a large favorite, you can overcome that. It's another thing if you're a below average team on the road in a pick'em game and overcoming that. But fortunately, Washington did for us and our listeners. Speaking of our listeners, I'm sure they want to ask the same question, but I'll do that for them. Uh, do you have any plans to send Dustin Hopkins a fruit basket? Will it arrive this week, or will you wait at least to be closer to the holidays? <laughs> that was the other obvious annoying part to this game. I think you lose three points in special teams at a pick'em game. And Scott Turner, while I thought he was very good today, was not very good in the goal-to-goal situation where he was handing the ball off to J.D. McKissick, was not very good on the two-point conversion attempt from the three-and-a-half. I'm a, I'm a huge proponent of play action, but going under center and going play action from the three-and-a-half yard line as if you're going to run the ball there was a bit <laughs> mind-boggling. You basically eliminate Taylor Henneke's legs from the equation. You eliminate him being able to see the defense, right? His back's got to be to the defense at some point. So I, I I didn't love that, but I thought Scott Turner was pretty good throughout that game. And I'll be candid. I love our listeners. Love them to death. But I was hoping that J.D. McKissick did not get in the end zone there. I did not want the ball going back to Atlanta. And had he been out at the one, you'll see a situation where Washington kneels the ball once, Atlanta calls their timeout, Washington kneels the ball again, and then they call timeout with three seconds, and Dustin Hopkins would have kicked the game winner. Washington would have won by one. And everyone that got Washington plus one, pick them, or listened and took the money line would have won as well. Had you listened on Sunday and said, hey, I'm going to lay the two and a half, even though they said money line, you would have been screwed. And I feel bad about that, but (laughs) (laughs) I would have much preferred winning by one and not giving the ball back to Atlanta and sweating a Hail Mary there at the end. You know, just even more reason why all of our listeners know to subscribe to the Bet the Board podcast. The RSS feed will update in real time. They have a chance to listen as soon as the podcast drops on Thursday. Getting the best of the number in the NFL. Listen on Wednesday, get the best of the number. And they never have to sweat it because they would have had a cheap money line at minus $1.15, minus $1.20. Would have walked out of that contest feeling like a million bucks. But alas, Washington holds on, wins the game 34-30, to and we had to work a lot harder to get there than we otherwise should have. Payne, I want to stay in the same division, and I think there's two different ways we can go. I mean, I can praise the Dallas Cowboys or I can praise the New York football giants, but I'll start with Dallas. And to the Cowboys' credit offensively, Kellen 
Moore continues to create offensive game plans based on opponent. I don't think in this day and age that should be understated because coming into the year, so many people, well, the Cowboys can only win one way. It's Dak Prescott throwing for 300 and some odd yards to mask some of their defensive deficiencies. Yet again, Dak Prescott doesn't have to do anything out of the ordinary, throws for less than 200 yards, but Ezekiel Elliott for the fourth straight game continues to see his rushing yardage number go up. From 33 yards week one against the Bucks to 71 week two, 95 and 143 yards in the win against Carolina. He now has four touchdowns uh, in the last three games. So his demise, or at least people that thought, he, oh, he's not going to get touches, clearly uh, was a knee-jerk reaction. But they're doing it in a variety of ways. It's Amari Cooper one week. It's Ezekiel Elliott another. It's a, and CeeDee Lamb. I mean, the Dallas Cowboys have shown versatility on the offensive side that I think will pay dividends as they get deeper into the season. So with Dallas, I was impressed. And we've gotten good Kellen Moore to start the seasons in the last few years. And then there's been this drop-off. So I hope things kind of continue on this path with Kellen Moore. But you hit it perfectly. Really, in a game where Dak wasn't great. Completion percentage more than 6% below expectation and, and horrific play on third down. Kellen Moore turned to the ground game. And, you know, Jerry Jones is, is loving life seeing that, right? The offensive line and, you know, his two-headed monster at tailback. Like, to see those truly contribute for a win, Jerry Jones is loving that. Dallas averaged seven yards a carry on first and second down. And that ground game allowed Dallas to bypass third down pretty frequently. Dallas was a net positive 2.8 yards per play on early downs, and that's ultimately what won it for him. The Giants game? A little frustrating for me because the line was off. We made it six and a half. Should have taken eight and a half early in the week. That's a bet every single time. But I wanted to wait. Wanted to see what the status of Shepard and Slayton was. Ultimately, when they were announced out, we shifted our focus to the first half under. But the reason I didn't play the side is I knew the game was going to be a grinder, Todd. And in my head, you kind of play these games out. And I said, this thing's going to be 14-10 late. And somehow Sean Payton's going to manufacture this touchdown drive and it's going to end 21-10. And so when I saw 21-10 scroll across my television mid-fourth quarter, I'm like, shit, that's some big brain stuff right there. (laughs) And then 15 minutes later, I see the Barkley receiving touchdown highlight come across about nine times. And the first words out of my mouth, it was only two of them. And the first one started with F and the second one start, ended with me. And so I was uh, not happy seeing that. But fortunately for the Giants fans, this was, uh, this was a big win. And it was a big win for us, too, because everyone knows we have the Saints win total under nine and a half. But Daniel Jones, that might have been the best game he's had as a pro. Danny, he's out there slinging it, man. He is out there slinging it with no weapons. That's that's the biggest thing. We saw there was a John Ross sighting, lost his shoe, but there was a John Ross sighting on the explosive touchdown in the first half. And that's what makes this more impressive is, you know, the offensive line isn't great. And you're down two of your top three weapons. It was great to see Daniel Jones and Galladay finally get on the same page. And that's something that... Had been frustrating Galladay a little bit, but we knew it could take some time because he had missed most of training camp with a nagging injury. And so him and Danny Dimes could not get on the same page. And it looked like finally against a very good secondary in in defense that that'll be something to look forward to in the future. Now, completion percentage, 10.5% above expectation for Daniel Jones. He was killer when the offensive line kept him clean, 24 of 30 completion from the clean pocket and then the clapper I thought did a decent job you get Saquon Barkley out in the pass game which I think is where he's actually most effective through with play action on 35% of dropbacks and Daniel Jones averaged 13.7 yards per pass attempt and a 144 passer rating with play action so this was just a fantastic game for Daniel Jones and it was really good seeing Saquon integrated into the offense I think people know my thoughts on him as an actual running back solid just refuses to hit the goddamn hole and so he's not as effective as he could be but he is lightning catching the ball out of the backfield and it was good to see him make a couple hard cuts yesterday so he's starting to get the confidence back in his knee as well 
You know what's crazy about the Giants? And somewhere along the way, it stops being a trend and it almost has to be accepted as gospel. The Giants are a team that you want no part of when they play in their own building, but because they're so piss poor playing in MetLife Stadium, they're always undervalued on the road. And it's not coincidence this team continues to have inflated price tags when they go out on the highway. Uh, And I didn't see an outright win coming against the Saints, uh, but the fact that they took professional money and, like you said, were able to come bursting through that back door winning outright in overtime spoke volumes. And Joe Judge gets them off the schneid. Speaking of New York, uh, I think a hat tip to the New York Jets as well. I have to give their defense credit. Credit pain. I mean, they had a chance to get blown out early in that game against the Tennessee Titans. Thought it was going to be more of the same from Zach Wilson in the offense, but the defense held them at bay. A game that easily could have been 17-0 is 9-0. The Jets are able to get a touchdown, uh, ultimately get their first lead of the season. And then when they had a chance to wilt in the fourth quarter, to their credit, defensively they stood up to the task, and we saw Zach Wilson finally show flashes why he was drafted in the top three picks against the defense that was much more manageable than a top five unit. That was the biggest thing. Defense kept him in the game early. They were able to get pressure on Ryan Tannehill. I thought Robert Salah called a very good game. How many times did they sack Ryan Tannehill yesterday? Felt like he was running I think for he his was life. Down, yeah, I think he was sacked about 17 times or so it felt watching that game in real time. It, it, he was running for his life early. They sold out to obviously stop the run, and you can do that when you don't have A.J. Brown or Julio Jones out there, and I thought that was part of you know, the reason why, obviously, the game got steamed is matchups, right? Now you can dedicate that extra man to the box and slow down Derrick Henry. And it was already a run defense that was 13th in rush efficiency. So that was their strength. So if you can use that strength and sell out to stop the run a little bit more, knowing that A.J. Brown and Julio Jones aren't beating you over the top, it provides a nice luxury for Robert Salah to crowd the box, send more blitzes. And, and they got after Ryan Tannehill, and they kept that team in the game early, and then we saw Zach Wilson start to mature a little bit, start to execute on offense, and this is a defense without Bud Dupree and the Titans where you see Zach kind of fighting in his own weight class, and I don't know if he's a franchise quarterback. I just have no clue in that situation, but this was a downgrading class. This wasn't Bill Belichick in his great scheme, right? We, we saw him stifle and confuse Tom Brady. One of the best quarterback ever. And we know his track history with rookie quarterbacks. Vic Fangio, a great defensive mind. And then you had the Panthers, who certainly weren't tested, but number one in rushing efficiency defense, number one in passing efficiency defense, number one in pass rush win rate. That's who Zach Wilson faced the first three starts of the season. You probably couldn't handpick three worst defenses for a rookie quarterback to face, all without his left tackle, Makai Becton. And so this was a step down in class, and it was good to see him gain some confidence early. Do we give Lamar Jackson credit, Payne? Because for the first time maybe in his uh, short-lived NFL career to date, the Ravens go on the road and beat a very good defense using the passing game as the spark as the running game was largely bottled up for stretches. Oversimplifying things here, but there is two keys to measuring offense, right? You're down-to-down efficiency. And then your ability to be explosive and sudden. And that was a game where defense obviously led the way. But Baltimore's explosiveness won it for him. Baltimore was able to jump out to a lead in the first half because of four explosive passes from Lamar. Denver had zero. Lamar wasn't overly efficient. Completion percentage 2% below expectation. We knew he missed Wednesday and Thursday's practice with a back injury. Videos surfaced of him practicing lately on Friday, and he didn't look close to 100%. So he only had six carries for 21 yards. Tyson Williams was a healthy scratch, so we got all of the ancient running backs involved in that game. It was a nice little ancient running back party just going on there in Baltimore. No clue what (laughs) they're doing. I mean, they're in an analytics-driven franchise, too, so it's just maddening to see that. You kind of just cast away a young kid for guys that were on the scrap heap couple weeks ago anyways we had heard in the offseason that Lamar had improved his deep passing and so far that's looks to be the case and you're gonna have some weapons coming back too and Rashad Bateman and Miles Boykin and so hopefully Lamar continues to improve that part of his game maybe show a little bit more down-to-down efficiency passing but five explosive throws 9.6 completed air yards in that game And then the defense handled the rest. Denver had a 29% passing success rate. Didn't matter if it was Bridgewater or Locke. 
three and a half yards per pass attempt for Denver. So Lamar got the team out with some explosives, built that lead, and it was too much to overcome. And, and the defense really showed out here. And so really, really game effort from Baltimore. That was an interesting line movement throughout the week. Not that it was like massive movements because it was just a back and forth toggle between the zero. But you had some of the numbers guys take Baltimore plus one and a half early in the week and then they moved to the one point favorite. And then I think when the Lamar video surfaced on Friday of the injury, we kind of saw Denver move back to a one point favorite. So it was an interesting little battle there on that game. Yeah, and a fascinating one to watch. I mean, Denver gets out with the touchdown to start the second quarter, and you think, okay, the Broncos have kind of weathered the storm. They stepped up in class, but that was the lone highlight for them offensively for the bulk of that game as Baltimore goes on the road with a commanding victory. With the sweet comes the sour, of course, pain. So with the good comes the bad. And I don't want to kick a team while it's already down, but the Detroit Lions, for everything positive that we said about their effort against the Baltimore Ravens last week where they were tough luck losers on that 66-yard field goal from Justin Tucker, the Lions reminded us why they were the Lions. And I know one of our most loyal listeners won't be happy to hear this in the wake of his fighting Irish going down on Saturday and then watching the Lions on Sunday. Dan Campbell down 10, elects to go on fourth and one instead of making it a one score game with about three and a half, four minutes to go. The Lions have one drive that comes up short on downs at the Bears eight. I think that was the one. They have one drive where they fumble on the Bears three where Jared Goff wasn't ready to go under center. And they have another drive short on down at, at the Bears five. Somewhere along the way, if you want to be a bad team and not a miserable franchise, you have to convert those things. But man, Tough to watch if you were a Lions fan yesterday against Chicago. Great to watch if you had bet the under. That's and a very that good point. Probably very wasn't good point. a deserving win had you bet the under, but some fortunes came through there in the first half. That's just kind of the Lions. You feel bad for them. This was a game you knew they thought they had a chance to win, and then you have those early turnovers when you're driving the ball down the field. What's interesting about that game, though, is all week. We saw it slowly trickling down. You kind of gauge the sense of the room. And I'll be candid. Guys that I had not spoke to in months texting me. Lions are going to win this week. Lions are going to win this week. I was on a phone call. Unrelated. We'll call it the card space. A buddy's talking to me about something. And then just out of the blue. And he's a small player. $50, player. said, boy. What do you make of the Lions this week? I know you don't talk to outside people about games. I said, no, you're right. He's like, but I really like the Lions. And I just said, stay away. This was like the marble game of the world. Like everyone thought the Lions were just going to come out here because no one wanted Chicago. Who wanted Chicago after that performance of 47 yards in Cleveland? Nobody wanted. And I'll be candid. I couldn't quite get myself there and should have once two and a half popped. But... Todd, you and I went a little contrarian on some of our contests, and and we included Chicago at a bad number on the contest at laying the three, just because it was that contrarian, and we liked it that much that we thought this was a spot where Chicago would show up. And so it doesn't stun me there, but I think you know whether you bet the under or whether you bet Chicago, there were certainly some early fortunes there on the Lions turnovers. It's actually the second time we've gone contrarian and used the Bears uh, as a contest entry through the first four weeks. Both home games took a good number against the Bengals at minus two and a half and then decided to come back and lay the three here. Although if Dan Campbell does convert that and get the touchdown, would not have been thrilled with a push when they don't employ optimal strategy by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, what else stuck out to you, Payne, in the negative form uh, for what you saw transpire? I think you have to go out to San Francisco. Seattle gets the win and cover. It was not pretty by any stretch. We broke this game down and we said, boy, this thing has a ton of variance. I'm not really sure how to slice and dice this thing because Seattle had come out like a house on fire early in these games and they were one of the most efficient offenses in the first half, second in success rate, first in explosiveness. And then whether it's complete randomness whether it's Shane Waldron's inability to adapt or it's the defense not being able to get off the field and getting it back into Russ's hands Seattle had the lowest time of possession coming into this game we didn't know what the hell was going on but this really was bad from Seattle across the board now I know they scored their 
first points of the entire season in the third quarter, 14 of them, and that changed some things. But you look in totality, 39% success rate on offense for Seattle, 4.3 yards per play, less than 300 yards of offense. It was not what we expected to see from Seattle and what was really a must-win game. And so when you look at the board early this morning on Monday, no surprise the Rams are getting steamed first thing. Now out to a two-point favorite because Seattle, there's something wrong there. And what did we mention? We said something to the effect of, I can't quite remember, but how the defense was inexplicably unprepared in certain situations where it looked like they were unorganized, didn't quite know what to do, which is odd for a defense being run by Ken Norton, who had been in Seattle for nine years over two stints, and somehow another broken play in the secondary. Trey Lance hits the bomb to Debo, I believe, down the sideline. But, I mean, a freshman quarterback at the local high school could have made that throw. I mean, no one was within 25 yards of Debo Samuel. So another broken coverage defensively as well. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, you hit the nail on the head talking about Seattle and that being a semi-fraudulent victory. I mean, they were anemic offensively, and it was just the 49ers' inability to put them away and land a kill shot early in that game that kept Seattle hanging around. They were able to take the game into the break at 7-7. And I think what was more indicative than anything else, Payne, that halftime number opened with San Francisco a dollar twenty-five favorite on the money line. That number steamed out to minus a dollar fifty-five, minus a dollar sixty. I saw one and a half turn to threes, and I think you know, watching that game, you go, okay, I can understand why there's this kind of support for San Francisco. Then, of course, there's the injury, there's the short field. Seattle finishes the game with less than two hundred fifty yards of offense, yet looks like they were an offensive juggernaut, especially on the. Uh, you know, scoreboard. When I look uh, at the Browns Vikings game pain, I'm not sure if I should be giving credit to both defenses and how well they performed, or if I should be taking shots at two offenses that struggled mightily. Baker, 15 to 33 in the game. Browns go for 4.4 yards per play. The Vikings pick up 75 yards on the opening drive. Think, hey, look, they've got a great game plan. Unfortunately, that for them, that was about 30% of their total offensive output for the afternoon. We didn't break this game down, and it was one that we probably should have. We saw the under get steamed here, and sometimes there are elements where your numbers simply don't matter. There's matchups in these games that just have so much importance and value, and I think that's what we saw here. Obviously, Baker Mayfield did not play well, missed the kind of hammer late in the game to OBJ that would have sealed the deal. But you had two offenses that are identical. Stefanski was in Minnesota last year. Minnesota runs the same offense that Cleveland runs virtually, right? There's obviously little intricate changes and details that aren't the same, but they run the same offenses. And so both defenses saw this every day at practice for the last how many ever years? And so there was no surprises. And we called for the Browns' defense to be much improved, and it is. And so you have to factor that in a little bit. There is a clear advantage along their defensive line in a Vikings pass block unit that has some question marks. On the flip side, you had a Browns offensive line that's playing a little bit beat up. And right now, the last six quarters of football for Mike Zimmer's defense looks like it's really rounding into shape. So something to factor moving forward as well. Yeah, I do think the Vikings, despite their one and three record through the first four games, will be just fine. They get a much more manageable opponent this weekend in the Detroit Lions. But you have to imagine if you're a Minnesota Vikings fan or in our case, someone holding a win total ticket uh, over the number, we'd much rather be three and one or even four and oh with a little luck. But I don't think that the Vikings are completely out of it by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, Payne, as far as the ugly was concerned, uh, I debated taking shots at the Rams, but figured, nah, I wouldn't bother there. I mean, Davis Mills and the Texans, do we even want to go in that particular direction for what they weren't able to do against Buffalo? You know, the Rams are worth kind of addressing because, and doing it quickly. We'll obviously break this game down Thursday, but you're seeing Raheem Morris attempt to execute a defense that isn't his. And so he's not able to make the necessary adjustments based upon how this defense should be played. 
And Arizona's offense was just dominant yesterday, but they did crush him on the ground. Obviously, game script impacted that a little bit, but as good as Kyler was through the air, this idea of just completely saying, hey, we just want to defend your pass because everyone wants to pass the ball this day and age, you still have to be able to stop the run to a certain extent and not allow the opponent to dictate game flow throughout. And ultimately, that's what the Cardinals were able to do with the Rams not being able to stop the run. You mentioned Davis Mills. It's it's low-hanging fruit, and I'll be honest with you. This was a game where I was contemplating taking the Texans. And then I saw the move from 15 and a half out to 19 at Pinnacle. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to stay off this one. I'm going to respect the move. And then in my head, I say to myself, there's weather in Buffalo. And I have a kid who played in the West Coast at Stanford. This probably isn't going to go very well. And so that's ultimately what saved me in this game. And I know a lot of people will just kind of scoff and be like, you know, it was the Texans. Buffalo is supposed to win this game. But just because you play bad teams, the way you play them and your ability to dominate them does have predictive qualities. And so you see a spread that closes a consensus 17 and a half, but the sharpest shot was dealing 19. Win by 40 and pitch a shutout. And the Texans had three extra days of rest and prep and your Super Bowl is the following week against Kansas City. I thought it was very impressive. You hold... An NFL offense, regardless if it's the Texans, a 2.6 yards per play and a 29% success rate, that's that's impressive to me, exceeding expectations by three-plus touchdowns there. So I think you have to give uh, Buffalo more credit than maybe shitting on on the Texans here. It that, looks like Brian Dayball's offense is, is starting to hum a little bit, and McDermott's defense is getting back to that top-five level we thought they could. That is very fair, and as you mentioned, we'll see Buffalo under the bright lights in Kansas City on Sunday Night Football, a game every football fan should be looking forward to with the two front runners in the AFC doing battle, uh, the Bills against the Kansas City Chiefs. All right, Payne, from the good, the bad, and the ugly, we move to look at lines, but it's also the perfect time to remind people to follow you on Twitter at Payne Insider. I'm Todd Furman. You, of course, can follow me there as well. Most importantly, follow the podcast at Bet the Board Pod. We appreciate all of you, our loyal listeners. The engagement this season has been outstanding. Go to iTunes, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already done so. Five-star reviews. Love the feedback we're getting on the Bet the Board YouTube channel as well as that show continues to grow in popularity as we're providing you content of the video and audio variety four days a week. Also, plenty of great written articles. Did get a note pane from one of our loyal listeners, one of my close friends, who goes, man, I didn't even know you guys were doing written articles, so I want to give uh, Drew Borland of Sports Source Analytics a shout-out, providing some great college football content, in addition to uh, our house writer, Watt05, who provides all sorts of market analysis each and every week. Just want to give uh, our listeners and those folks looking to get a little bit smarter in terms of the betting markets, all sorts of different tools. Look-ahead lines, pain Titans. Three and a half point favorites for a trip to North Florida to take on the Jaguars. It's good to see that Urban Meyer will get himself out of the bar and back onto the sidelines for this one. Look ahead number four. This I gotta tell you, I saw her. I'd be in the bar too. <laughs> I think good for him. I think when you're a higher profile head coach, sometimes you have to be a little bit more discreet. But that's a different discussion for a different day. I won't claim to know. Absolutely, what kind- you can't go with the the, the bright salmon pullover you got to be a little bit more discreet with with your tones and colors so you just don't stand out like a sore thumb especially when you go back into the heart of buckeye country i'm sure if he was somewhere in laramie wyoming people wouldn't have gone hey look it's uh the old ball coach there in urban meyer but uh the titans were a seven and a half point favorite in this game of course jacksonville acquitted themselves quite nicely on thursday night coming up just short against the Bengals. but as we talked about with the titans plenty of injuries and we're not quite sure who will be back in the fold for sunday's kickoff that's why we've seen some movement, right? Part of this is the unknowns. What's the status of A.J. Brown, Julio Jones, Bud Dupree? Part of this is the Jaguars performing better than expectation Thursday night in front of a national audience. And while this is substantially shorter than the look ahead, this number is certainly closer to my number at the current price. And so ultimately, you have a hungry Jags team. Urban Meyer did give a passion speech post game about loving the guys and playing hard and they probably should have won that game and would have won that game had they 
executed and scored the touchdown going into half because then it's 21 nothing. The game's over. Cincinnati's dead and buried. But you provided some element of like, hey, we're still in this game. And it's Cincinnati that goes into the locker room charged. They get the ball out of the half, score a touchdown, and all of a sudden it's game on. So this number at three and a half, certainly closer to what we made it than the seven and a half. But you do want to kind of keep an eye on some of those injuries. And if you have a situation where A.J. Brown, Julio Jones, and Bud Dupree are all in, then this becomes a little bit more of a daunting task for Jacksonville. Well, and you mentioned injuries, and that's part of what's impacting this particular number, along with very different results yesterday. Uh, the Arizona Cardinals were a one-and-a-half-point favorite at FanDuel Sportsbook on the look-ahead number. We've seen that num- that price balloon out to the Cardinals minus four-and-a-half as they'll welcome in the San Francisco 49ers for a pivotal divisional matchup. No speculation required. We know Jimmy Garoppolo is going to miss some time, so the Trey Lance experience will begin on Sunday with him getting his first ever NFL start substantial move here through the three and the four counts obviously as you alluded to opposite results play a part massive line movement Arizona wins by you know double digits as a road underdog San Francisco loses by a touchdown as a home favorite the Trey Lance factor is huge all signs point to him being the starter after Jimmy G said his postgame presser that'll have an MRI today and should only miss a few games so you have to factor in a downgrade there I'm not sure what Trey Lance is. Super talented. Thrown into the fire here against Seattle. You'll see the two touchdowns. You'll see his ability and efficiency running. But you also have to factor in that Seattle was up multiple scores. They went to a little bit of a prevent defense. They didn't prepare for a quarterback that was as mobile as Trey Lance. Obviously, they prepared for Jimmy G a little bit. And so some of the throws that he was making almost got like nine guys killed. And we'll see if the accuracy is there. We'll see if you can game plan, uh, if a defense games plan for him, what it looks like, especially defense that deals with the mobile quarterback at practice every day. So that'll be the interesting element here. That's all I have to say in this game. It doesn't shock me that we've seen this line move. Ultimately, it'll come down to if professional betters can kind of plug their nose and be a little bit higher on Trey Lance, because certainly I think there's, there's some value potentially uh, as this creeps up on, on the, uh, on the 49ers watching Trey Lance yesterday come in relief for Jimmy Garoppolo. All I could think of was Rick Vaughn in the movie major league, throw him the heater. There was no touch. There was no finesse and it didn't matter if a receiver was three yards away or if he was 30 (laughs) yards away, you were getting the 101 mile an hour two seamer right at you and you better catch the damn thing. Otherwise it was going to go right through your sternum. I didn't know why Kittle was still in the game late down 14 there was like a minute 20 to go and he throws a ball over the middle is like the one duck he threw and it was a wobbler and Kittle just gets crunched between two defenders and then the following play Debo runs like a seven yard in and it's incomplete thank God Trey Lance threw it 15 yards over Debo's head because Debo is about to get sandwiched between a safety and a linebacker. And you see Debo look back to the line of scrimmage like, what are you doing? <laughs> and so uh, that'll be interesting to see. You know, Kyle Shanahan's brilliant. Like, the guy's an offensive genius. So he's going to craft some things here for Trey Lance that no one's seen yet. And that's partly the intrigue, I think, with San Francisco, is if Trey Lance doesn't turn it over and he's a little bit more accurate and he has an entire week to build his confidence, getting all the reps, which is huge, then you may have something here. Yeah, it's fascinating because, of course, Arizona sees a different version of Trey Lance every day in practice as well. Kyler Murray and his mobility, a little bit different tackling in space, uh, something you don't get to do necessarily in practice. And and one other game pain uh, that I wanted to touch on, we saw the Chiefs three-and-a-half-point favorites uh, on a look-ahead number for that Sunday night showdown against the Buffalo Bills. This number reopened at FanDuel Sportsbook, Chiefs minus three, and we're even seeing some two-and-a-halves, albeit juiced, out there in the market, so potentially an early move through a key number as we try and figure out exactly how these two AFC heavyweights are perceived in the market. I'll be quick since we'll break this down in detail. The line opening three, 
indicated that Buffalo would be the side. So it's not shocking to see them take money early Monday morning. Now at two and a half, it becomes a little bit different of a handicap. Buffalo, this is their Super Bowl. And the things they've done with their roster were predicated and geared towards beating one team, and that's the Kansas City Chiefs. So we will see if their natural pass rusher, or pass rushing rather, can get home here. And if it can, then it makes this game a little bit more of a difficult task for Kansas City. And let's see if Josh Gordon's in a game like this. I kind of banged the table for Kansas City to go get a physical receiver on the opposite side of Tyreek. They went and did it. I'm not sure Josh Gordon would have been my choice. I was kind of leaning towards a trade with Preston Williams, but ultimately Brett Veach went and got a physical receiver on the other side. Let's see if he's ready for Buffalo. Sunday night football marquee matchup. We'll have to wait six plus days for that one. What we don't have to wait for is Monday night football pain, and it's a showdown with some of the Chiefs' most bitter rivals in the AFC West. The Chargers will welcome in the Las Vegas Raiders. You're looking at the Chargers, a field goal favorite at FanDuel Sportsbook. Total in this game, 51 and a half. The Raiders, they've won three out of the last four against the Chargers, four out of six. When you look at the Raiders, they've been outstanding on the road, going eight and three straight up the last 11 on the highway. They've won six of their last seven. We know about the Chargers' struggles in their own building, 11-21-1 against the spread at home since moving to Los Angeles. The Raiders have won the last four Monday night football games all outright as underdogs, including week one against the Baltimore Ravens. And the other thing that I think listeners will find fascinating that I know you and I have already know comes to be fact this is not going to feel like a Chargers home game by any stretch of the imagination and Derek Carr didn't exactly mince words pretty much saying you always looked at it as another home game and that's no disrespect it's just a fact Raiders field goal (laughs) underdogs in the division against a Chargers team fresh off the upset of the Kansas City Chiefs and let's start there with Derek Carr and John Gruden who are both killing it right now John Gruden is doing what he's best at. And it's no surprise. This is something we've just kind of, we've said for years, we said it the moment he was hired. It's like, lock John Gruden in his office, only let him look at film, prepare a game plan, organize a script and call plays. Don't let him touch the roster. Don't let him have input in the draft. Just let him do his thing. And so far against defenses of Baltimore, Pittsburgh, and Miami, the Raiders offense ninth in passing efficiency. The O-line's been downgraded. There's really only one huge threat in Darren Waller. So you have John Gruden really manufacturing this offense, and you're getting Derek Carr playing the best ball of his life. And that's really what's transpiring here for this team. Derek Carr's pushing the ball down the field, which is exactly what John Gruden wanted. 25% of Derek Carr's throws have been 15-plus yards this season. So they are threatening defenses down the field. But this is a big test, right, against Brandon Staley. And his defense worries about defending the pass first, defending the pass second, and defending the pass last. And there's there's really no other thought. And that's where I think this game gets a little bit interesting is the Chargers want you to run it. They dare you to run it. They let you run it. And the Raiders can't really run. So this is really good on good here with the Raiders trying to move it through the air against the best part of the Chargers defense. But it might not actually come down to like who can win that battle of what both teams do best, but what both teams do worst. And so that's the intriguing part for me because Gruden does want to run it, right? He's got this old school mentality to him. And you would have thought when he signed Peyton Barber that it was Barry Sanders in his prime. And so it's really interesting because you just look at the Raiders right now, 30th in rushing efficiency, 31st and run block win rate dead last in pff's run block rate the chargers 31st in defensive rush efficiency you have justin jones on the interior out kenneth murray injured his ankle on saturday's practice he's out so two guys out in brandon staley's front seven but gruden's so old school that he actually still runs more on first down this season than he passes and that is actually the one down where the raiders have been decent running 15th in rushing success rate on first down so keep an eye on that down If the Raiders are able to run on first down and they're picking up four or five yards a pop, that may give the Raiders an edge when they actually do pass. We'll see if their offensive line can hold up in protection. Bottom third in the league in pass block win rate for the Raiders. The Chargers are top 10 in pass rush win rate. And you're going to have this 
one-on-one matchup where Joey Bose is lined up against Alex Leatherwood, the rookie. And Leatherwood's allowed fourth most pressures among tackles. He's currently sixth worst in pass blocking efficiency. So the Raiders are going to have to chip. They're going to have to send help that way. Or, or Bose is just going to wreck this game, Todd. So where Alex Ingold has to earn his paychecks, run the uh, keep the fullback out there for a little bit of additional pass protection. And you're right. I mean, you mentioned the fact that the Raiders don't wow you by anything they do when it comes to establishing the ground game. They're going to have to find some modicum of success. When you look at the Chargers from an efficiency standpoint, yards per game, yards per carry, nothing they do there will leave you brimming with confidence. On the other side of the ball pane, when you try and identify some familiarity, strengths, and weaknesses, we all know what Justin Herbert is capable of doing and what he has done against the Raiders. In two starts last year, averaged 320 yards per game, had four total touchdowns, seven completions of 20-plus yards, and accumulated a passer rating of 113-plus. You look at what Herbert has done so far this season, third in completion percentage and eighth in yards per attempt against the zone, the defensive scheme that Gus Bradley has made famous and popular in the past. But the one strength of this Raiders defense has actually been their ability to get some pressure uh, with a defensive line where there are a ton of bodies that they'll cycle in through. Max Crosby among the league leaders in 40 quarterback hits. He he should be matched up against Storm Norton, who has looked more like a turnstile in relief of Brian Balaga than anything else. But this Chargers offensive line is still going to be a bigger challenge than what the Raiders have encountered so far. Maybe the matchup to watch on that Raiders defensive line versus the Chargers offensive front will be Yannick Ngakwe against talented Northwestern rookie Rashawn Slater. This is really one of the most fascinating matchups, I think, of the entire week. And that's what I'm going to try to get out of tonight's game, is seeing which one of these units is, is for real. Because my feeling coming in is that the Chargers offense has massive upside but they're not playing nearly as well as what people think because Justin Herbert's just kind of enamoring people. And that there, I think there's probably only one direction to go for the Raiders' defense, and that's down. But right now, it's just difficult to kind of parse through this because the perception is the Chargers' offense, and you have you know Herbert, as I alluded to, and Austin Eckler and Keenan Allen, and now Mike Williams looks like a real weapon is that the Chargers offense is like flat out humming it's not like reality is like it's not a great offense right now on first and second down in the first three quarters the Chargers are 19th in total success rate Joe Lombardi and Justin Herbert are operating the 25th most efficient first down offense and that's coming against the Cowboys Chiefs and Washington defenses that have an average efficiency rank of 25 so this offense is not what everyone currently thinks it is Justin Herbert's just playing, you know, a miracle worker role here. Third and fourth down is where he is just killing it. It's where he's allowing the offense to sustain drives. I mean, that is where this offense is really flat out surviving. 57% success rate on third and fourth downs combined. But early downs are what's far more predictable than third down. If I wasn't enamored with with the names, we would be calling for offensive regression for the Chargers. The only reason I'm not is the talent, right? It's because I want to kind of be ahead of this surge that I anticipate coming at some point this season. I'm trying to kind of not be biased and be impartial and understand that this is a brand new offense. It's a really complex offense. There were zero preseason games played. More is being added to Herbert's plate, and everyone's kind of learning on the fly. And so that's why I don't really want to be ahead, you know, behind the curve on what this offense can potentially be. The defense they face tonight with the Raiders, it's improved, but by how much, right? Like you, you face Big Ben, you got Jacoby Brissett. Neither of those guys are Justin Herbert. Obviously, Baltimore's a run-first offense, and their focus was Kansas City in Week 2. This is the real first test for the Raiders' pass defense. Now, the defensive coordinator and the names on the Raiders' defense are better than last year. There's been this really nice infusion of new guys and then young guys also improving. Quentin Jefferson and Gakwe, who you mentioned, Todd, are great additions to the front four. Perriman and, and, and K.J. Wright, if they can stay healthy, they provide a nice veteran presence. Trayvon Mullen has really improved. You get the solid pick with the other Trayvon from TCU at safety. Casey Hayward was the no-risk, high-reward signing at a premium position we outlined specifically in the offseason, and that move's paid off in spades. It's like, 
when you when you think about Casey Hayward, it's like the scene from Moneyball that we talk about all the time, Todd. It's it's Billy Bean talking to David Justice. You want to stay in the league and earn another contract? And I want to milk the last good football you have left in you. And that's what's going on here with, with Casey Hayward. But again, the schedule of passing offenses to date that the Raiders have faced just 24th in efficiency. The Raiders have also faced one of the very easiest schedules of pass-blocking offensive lines. you got Miami and Pittsburgh, who are 28th and 27th in pass-block win rate. The Ravens' O-line was beaten and battered coming into the season, still is. And so that combination has really allowed the Raiders to do one thing defensively, and that is get pressure without blitzing. Raiders are ninth in pressure rate despite blitzing just 10% of the time, second least in the league. And that combination allows you to dedicate more guys in the secondary and more guys in coverage. And so let's see if that's something that can sustain. It doesn't feel like it can, but we'll see. You also have some narrative, which you hinted at at the top, Gus Bradley, Casey Hayward against their old team. Some added motivation there. I'll be candid. What I have seen so far in this game is one group fired the Chargers minus three or in the week. They've been extremely high in the Chargers. I think they've bet the Chargers every single week this season. And then you had the number grabbers saying, I have to take three and a half in a game where there isn't a home field advantage and 75 to 80% of the crowd are going to be Raiders fans. So there's absolutely no home field advantage. And so there's a battle going on with two groups on the side. Under 52 and a half was very sharp. I've also seen Justin Herbert's rushing prop come in over 14 and a half rush yards. That's what I've seen and been given. Don't personally have a penny on this game as of, you know, 7 a.m. Vegas time. Still going to dig into it once we get off the podcast, but I don't have a penny on this game, but that's what I have seen and heard in terms of what's sharp and who's on what in this game so far. I think it'll be a tremendous watch. I mean, we talk about all of these, you know, watershed moments early in a football season, trying to figure out which teams are for real, which teams are a bit fraudulent. And I think people had high expectations for the Chargers coming into the season, knowing that Justin Herbert and new offense with all the weapons was just starting to scratch the surface. And you mentioned Mike Williams. I mean, he's been an absolute revelation opposite opposite Keenan Allen. And it's really given this offense a much more dynamic playmaker in terms of what Williams is doing, not just as a legitimate deep threat, but as a high volume receiver. I mean, he's had two games this year. Where he's got seven or more catches. He did that once in his entire career coming into the season. Meanwhile, the Raiders, I mean, not much was expected of this team before the season. I mean, their win total seven, seven and a half. They have a chance to start off four and zero and suddenly become very relevant behind a new look defense and an offense that's brimming with confidence, even without their lead back in Josh Jacobs. So a fascinating football game for a variety of reasons, and that's the perfect way that people can try and take advantage. I mean, if you don't find an angle that you like before kickoff, FanDuel has you covered with all sorts of live options, in-game halftimes, you name it. FanDuel.com/backslash/bettheboard. Go there, sign up, and take full advantage. Payne, we've covered a lot of the NFL landscape here on this Monday morning. Any final nuggets or tidbits before we cast the NFL aside and focus on college football before we reconvene on Thursday? Yes. Going back to the podcast itself and our loyal listeners, go to YouTube. Subscribe as soon as you hear this. Tonight, this evening, as the game is kicking off, we will announce the five winners of the $1,000 giveaway. Five winners, 200 bucks each, $1,000 giveaway to YouTube. You're automatically entered if you subscribe. So if you're listening to this, as soon as it comes out, you'll have eight plus hours to subscribe and get in there. The second thing we're doing, Todd said go to iTunes, which I believe is now called Apple Podcasts. Same thing. Rate and review the Same podcast. Same damn okay? thing. They know what I meant. Go to Apple Podcasts. If you leave a five-star review, you will automatically be entered into our next giveaway. Three people will be selected at random. We'll throw it in an automator. $100 each to three people. You have to make it a five-star review and leave a nice little comment so we see it and we can actually have our producer throw it in an automator. And we will run that next Monday. We'll announce the winner. So go to Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star review, nice little comment, automatically entered, three people, chance at 100 bucks each. So that's it. I think this is the thing that we enjoy doing the most because we know we're not here without our listeners. We would rather give money away to our listeners as a marketing approach, right? Rather than spending it on other forms of marketing. And so anytime we can give away to you guys, uh, you are the reason we are here. We try to do that. That's it. 
over and out. Let's get yeah. out of Dodge. No, it's the biggest thing. Um, let me add to that real quick. I mean, it's a grassroots mar- grassroots marketing campaign. It's allowed us to do a number of things different from other sports betting podcasts that are out there. We've grown organically, mainly because, like Payne said, it's all about listener support, the interaction, the retweets, you guys sharing it with your friends and families. Hopefully, we continue to make you smarter each and every week, both on the pro football and college football side. And anything you guys would like to see us do, always feel free to offer feedback. But one thing, don't tell us you want picks on all six. 16 NFL games because that's never been our brand. That never will be our brand. It's all about allowing you guys the tools to make more informed decisions when you head to the window each and every weekend during the football season. Follow Payne on Twitter at Payne Insider. I'm Todd Furman. You can follow me there. Again, most importantly, follow the podcast at Bet the Board Pod. Best of luck with all of your wagers on Monday Night Football between the Raiders and Chargers. And we'll see you at the window. Thanks for listening to Bet the Board. You can catch Todd and Payne every Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday during football season, breaking down the biggest NFL and college football games. And to make sure you don't miss any free best bets, subscribe to Bet the Board on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Some people just know bundling with Allstate means big savings. Just like they know the right ingredient means big flavor. They know honey on pizza is where it's at. And olive oil on ice cream is the cherry on top. And they know when you bundle home and auto with Allstate, you can save up to 25%. Mm-mm. Bundled savings vary by state and are not available in every state. Saving up to 25% is the countrywide average of the maximum available savings off the home policy. Allstate Vehicle and Property Insurance Company and Affiliates, Northbrook, Illinois.